calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. All right, podcast listeners, we are getting so excited for our next virtual retreat. It's coming up September 24th and 25th all online, and we can't wait to tell you about the great speakers we have lined up. I want to tell you about a few that I'm especially looking forward to. We have Matt Bell, How to Write and Rewrite a Novel in Three Drafts, absolutely gold, and a fave of the podcast and our last retreat, Courtney Mom, the author of The Year of the Horses. She's doing query letter writing 2.0, How to Get an Agent's Attention in a Competitive Market. We also have excellent book coach, super talented author of self-care, and she's also a poet, Lee Steins, write a memoir that will actually sell an introduction to Memoir Plus. Can't wait for you all to learn about what Memoir Plus means. All right, everybody, we will see you at the virtual retreat September 24th and 25th. Go to our website to sign up and we'll see you there. everyone welcome back to another books with hooks as is our want we are diving straight in today we're starting with cc's first query letter cc take it away dear cc carly and bianca the podcast the shit no one tells you about writing has been a bright spot in these bleak pandemic years for me thank you for all that you do to uplift writers and keep us going cc i know you do not represent ya but I love how you cut to the heart of the issue of a query without holding back while still managing to be kind. I could use some of that insight for my query letter and first pages and would be so grateful for any feedback you might have. Title Redacted is a 99,000 word YA fantasy that will appeal to fans of Naomi Novik's A Deadly Education and centers on a main character with social anxiety similar to Corinne Duvai's The Art of Saving the World. 16-year-old Lou thinks she has figured out how to survive high school, keep her head down, and stick to math. Her synesthesia for numbers and colors turning out to be a source of magic and accidentally ripping open a rift in space and time in the middle of math club, not a part of the original plan. As if clawing her way free of Mobius strips of infinite power in the portal weren't bad enough, a violent group bursts through, intent on wielding her synesthesia-driven power for their own agenda. An agenda, the group claims, once shared by her mother. At least until her mother went rogue, 
shut down the portals to their home world of Dicepia and escaped to Earth 17 years ago without any explanation. Without the portals to energize their magic, Dicepia was left on the brink of collapse. With the help of a sentient flying invertebrate and MacGyvered sodium bomb, Lou escapes her captors, but is left with nothing but questions about a mother she barely knew before her death, 10 years ago, and a home she hadn't even known existed until that morning. Armed solely with her synesthesia and a heavy shield of sarcasm, Lou must uncover her mother's secrets and learn to harness powers that might be the key to saving Dyspia, or might just doom both worlds. The first of a planned duology, Title Redacted was born from my love of quantum mechanics and epic fantasy. It truly took shape, though, as I rocked my newborn daughter to sleep and imagined what worlds she might discover. When I'm not working my day job as an infectious disease physician, I am usually found playing with my kids and dogs, reading with my geriatric cat, Xena, or gardening badly. Thank you for your time and consideration. Name Redacted. Wonderful, Cece. Thanks for that. Ooh, that was quite a voicey query letter. I must be honest, I enjoyed that. Let's hear your take on it. I am a fan of voicey query letters. I don't recommend that authors do that because I know that not everyone likes it. And even though I'm a fan, the the benefit of voiciness um, doesn't usually pay off because that usually you can tell that on the pages. But for me, I mean, I want to start off by saying, like, thank you so much for, for the compliment. It's so appreciated. Whenever we're here critiquing query letters, there's always a little voice in my head that goes, oh my gosh, I hope that was helpful. I hope that this isn't going to ruin someone's day. Even when I compliment people, I worry about this. So I really appreciate it. In terms of the plot paragraphs, which is essentially what I always fixate on, I would keep the query letter as is up until not a part of the plan. After that, the plot points become both too specific to the world, which is confusing since I don't understand the world, and vague. Things like, must uncover her mother's secrets and learn to harness powers to save the world. Like, it's, it's too broad, because I, I don't know what that refers to specifically. Another example, you mentioned an agenda, right? Like, we have no idea what this agenda is, not even some type of knowledge. So as a silly example in the movie The Matrix, the agenda is that artificial intelligence has gotten so advanced that it needs to farm humans in the, in the way that humans currently farm animals, right? So even though I know nothing about the world of The Matrix, if I were to read a query letter without having seen anything, that to me is a specific agenda, farm humans. What's the agenda of this world? Like, I'm sure you can tell us with a sentence that doesn't give anything away. And I don't think it is giving away to share the agenda because that's what she has to fight against. The presence of clauses like Mobius strips of infinite power. I have no idea what a Mobius strip of power is, let alone one of infinite power. So, so when you say this, I understand that you might be thinking, wait, but you said you wanted specificity, like specificity in a personal universal way, not in terms of using the jargon of this world, because we're not familiar with that yet, but more in terms of leaning into the thing they're trying to save that would be understandable no matter the world. And again, to go back to the Matrix example, even if you knew nothing about the world building of the Matrix, the idea of human beings being farmed is kind of scary. So you don't want that. And then, of course, the specifics of how that came to be, the fact that there was a war, that the sun was destroyed, etc. That would only come in once you're reading the pages. So I would revise this with, with these notes in mind. 
when it comes to the, you know, the mention of a duology, I definitely appreciate the honesty, but I'm wondering, does it have standalone potential? Because if so, I would add that. As we know, a sequel isn't always possible. It depends on whether the first book does well, usually anyway. And I loved the mention of your geriatric cat. Like, that was so sweet. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you, Cece. And I think that advice will be hugely helpful to anyone who's writing speculative fiction or dystopian fiction, anything that requires world building, because it's so easy to get confused in terms of what you want specificity for. And, you know, it makes sense that the listeners might get confused and say, oh, you want specificity about the world rather than, like you say, the personal universal elements. All right. So why don't you tell us what was in those opening pages? All right. So The protagonist is on stage at a math competition. She has finished the problem and she's waiting, which we learn through inner life is usually the worst part for her, the part where she has to wait and she has no more math to do. So right away, she thinks to herself that she should change the answer to make it wrong, but she doesn't. And as she's waiting, she thinks about catching the eye of the only girl on the other team, but decides not to. A phone rings in the audience and a parent or grandparent slips out of the auditorium to take the call. She tries to reassure herself that no one is looking at her, but she still feels super anxious. And she shares how the knowledge that Nora is in the audience is the only thing keeping her there. She closes her eyes and begins to meditate with her special ability involving seeing colors and numbers. When she returns from the daydream, the judge is standing in front of her, saying that she needs to hand over the paper and telling her, oh, don't worry, it's okay if you don't have the right answer. Very few people get the answer right. And once again, she's thinking to herself, I should just change these answers and put the wrong ones, but she doesn't do it. She observes how the captain of the other team is looking at her like he's totally sure of his victory, of the team's victory. The protagonist huddles with her team and considers saying something when an argument breaks out, but doesn't. And she's safe in the knowledge that when her team members aren't able to solve a problem, they will reach out to her because that's what they always do. And sure enough, that's what happens. So finally, the judge, who is new, tells everyone that there was a standout submission among them, a perfect score, and she knows it's hers, right? So she's thinking to herself, you know, she's shrinking in her seat because she knows where this is going. She clearly is uncomfortable with the attention, and she closes her eyes again. And we assume she's going to go to a meditative place again, but instead, she sees a raging river, and then darkness shooting out, and then she's drowning, and there's a scream, and there's more darkness, and that's what's in the pages. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Wow, that sounds like a lot of interiority. We expect this with YA because, of course, teenagers are so much in their heads. But did it work? Let us know. So, tons of interiority. And the issue, in my opinion, is that it's too much abstract interiority. Too much abstract introspection. I am a fan of interiority, but if it's not serving character and plot, especially in the first pages where we are hooking the reader, it can read like a dream. You know how sometimes dreams are nonsensical and incohesive? Like it's all about how you feel as opposed to a story that makes any sense. That's a little bit how this is reading, especially in the latter part, the part where she starts seeing the darkness. I wanted there to be more plot and character building. For example, I love that the protagonist tells us that Nora is the reason why she's on stage. But I wanted additional context with emotionality. For example, does imagining Nora 
beaming with pride when she inevitably wins, warms her heart and perhaps also makes her feel less guilty about being a burden to Nora? Or is it more sinister of a relationship? Does she, for example, know that nothing short of perfection will satisfy Nora and there will be hell to pay if she doesn't perform? I obviously have no idea because all I know is Nora and I like that there's no name-splaining and the fact that Nora is keeping her there. But I don't know how complicated these feelings are or whether they're mostly positive or mostly negative. And of course, feelings don't exist on a binary. Another example, she's clearly very confident that she will win. And I love that. But at the same time, she doesn't seem to derive any satisfaction from being like the best. Like she's the best at solving math problems. That's badass. That's really cool. And like, does she not love this? Does she do it for the extracurricular on her resume so she can get into college? Whatever her reason, I wanted her to be competitive because we're in a competition and this is important for authenticity. Few people can compete without feeling competitive, but also to ensure that the reader will root for the character. If the character doesn't feel competitive, the reader won't care about the stakes. And then another, as a final example of what I wanted in the interiority, the plot point about her wanting to change the answers but not doing it, which happened twice. Like, why? Like, what about the attention bothers her? I'm not looking for a lengthy explanation. I'm looking for a one-liner to give me emotionality. It's not clear, and I don't see any indication, which just makes it odd, given that, to the best of my knowledge, she chose to be there, right? Like, it's clearly an extracurricular. This isn't a normal class. So all in all, I would shift the focus of the interiority to serve character building and story-forward plot. Now, and I'm totally mindful that describing an ability that is so interior-based, like, literally, she is seeing things is hard to do. So perhaps it would be best to dedicate fewer sentences to the synesthesia and keep it sparse, only a few lines, and instead use the real estate of the first pages to build character and plot with stakes that are clear to the reader and then show us the, the synesthesia later. In, in detail, I mean, later in detail. So that might be a good solution. I hope my notes resonate with you. Thank you, Cece. Yeah, and in terms of stakes, that also helps with tension, which you also want in those opening pages. So I think leaning into that will will heighten the piece entirely. All right, Carly, let's hear your query letter. Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, thanks for making this podcast and helping me actually look forward to getting on the treadmill. I'd love your feedback on the first pages of my novel, How to Save a Life in 10 Dates, an upmarket dual POV story with romantic elements and a dash of the speculative. At 80,000 words, it combines themes in Holly Miller's The Sight of You with tropes from How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. It would appeal to fans of Rebecca Searle and Beth O'Leary and ultimately poses the question, what if you knew when others were going to die? As a result of a childhood wish gone wrong, Lanyard Montgomery can see a countdown on people's bare backs ticking down to their deaths. Guilt-ridden over her sister's untimely death and unable to let people get close, Lanyard is desperate for a life without timers. NICU doctor Colby Allen was once engaged, and he now spurns his friend's matchmaking attempt too focused on fundraising for his young nephew's liver transplant. But when a friend creates an online page sponsoring Colby to date again, Colby watches the pledges pour in and reluctantly agrees to the terms, take one unsuspecting woman on 10 dates. At a New Year's Eve party, Colby picks Lanier for the job, but Lanier accidentally sees his timer and decides to alter fate. When she discovers Colby's plans to help his nephew go beyond financial, changing Colby's timer seems to be the path to the future she wants and her best chance at making restitution. But as feelings grow stronger than either of them planned, they both become more and more desperate to stop time. 
I'm a freelance writer and editor with a budding bookstagram account, and I hold a BA in creative writing. Although I'm now back in my South Florida hometown, I lived in the UK for 10 years, where I married a Brit, discovered a love of tea, and became a mother to two boys. I published a short story plus a series of articles in the literary magazine Litro. I've attached the first five pages below. Thank you for considering my work. Yours sincerely, Shannon Evans. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, what was your take on that? Well, first of all, it is a pleasure and an honor to help you enjoy the treadmill. We do what we can to to help everybody go for their walks and, and get their exercise. So thanks for tuning in wherever you're able to. Next up, I really like this title. I mean, obviously, it has very strong like how to lose a guy in 10 days vibes to it, which I mean, that's a great movie. Everybody loves that movie, right? So and yeah, I don't know. I just think it's it's old enough not to be like you're copying it. It's just a nice homage. And I, I really liked that. I also really like the hook. It's so it's so strong and clear, right? She can see a countdown on people's backs ticking down to their deaths. I think that's just really clear. It's still contemporary and modern, but slightly speculative, which I think um, is super appealing. So I like when a conceit is high concept and really clear, just easy to wrap our head around. We don't spend the whole query letter kind of trying to figure out what the conceit is. It's, it's very clear. One of the things I think that's really important when we're doing kind of a, a dual POV romance is really understanding the why, the why in this, you know, why do these two people have to be together? And so this whole kind of Colby reluctantly agrees to the terms I don't know. I just felt like there really wasn't a very strong why, what's in it for him? You know, why does he have to be involved in this romance? I just really wasn't feeling that part really clear in the query letter. I would like that to be a little bit, a little bit more clear. I found this sentence a little bit awkward when she discovers Colby's plans to help his nephew go beyond financial. I don't know. I stumbled over that a little bit. I know I think you're meaning like financial in the sense of raising funds for his health, but I just stumbled over that sentence a little bit. Just letting you know that. The next thing I had a question about, and while I do find this conceit quite clear, I did have a question about, we don't know how she can change people's timers. And so does she even know how to change people's timers? I wasn't really clear on that. So I don't know if we need to kind of know that to understand, but her goal seems to be to change Colby's timer. So I would love to know a little bit more about that. And and hopefully that would be easy to explain in the query letter. I think the author bio is is really straightforward and really cute and interesting. So overall, I think it's it's a win. But as I said, just need to know a teensy bit more, I think, to make this as clear as possible and really focus on the book itself. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. All right. Can you give us an idea of what was in those opening pages? All right, I'm going to summarize the pages now. I do want to add just a content warning or trigger warning here about infant death. Okay, so the summary is we are in Lanier's point of view. December 31st, 1.04 p.m. is our timestamp. Our character, Lanier, is starting a new job. She is working at a maternity ward, labor delivery ward, and she is doing housekeeping, which means she's cleaning up after labor and delivery, which is a very messy, messy, messy job. So she's kind of bemoaning about kind of the messiness of the job. She's kind of had to explain to her friends and family why she wants to do that. She she says it's because she wants a normal life. We don't know anything yet kind of what that means, but what normal means to her. So the reason she's in the the room, the hospital room that she's in is because somebody just delivered a baby. So the mom, the dad, and the baby are all in the room. The doctor's in the room and she's in the room. And so we we realize really quickly that as the reader that we are going to watch her look at this baby to figure out what the countdown is going to be 
on this baby because she can see people's countdowns for their lifespan on their back. So it says she eyes the baby and she does what she came here to do, why she took this job. She kind of rolls the baby over and looks at the at the back or tries to while, while she hears everybody talking. And so we hear kind of in the background the, the parents talking and they had some miscarriages. They had a stillbirth and they're kind of celebrating this live birth that they had. And then as she kind of rolls the baby over to look at them, she doesn't see any numbers. And so all of a sudden she's like, okay, that's odd. She's seeing like zero zeros. And then she figures out what's going to happen, which is that the baby is probably going to have a cardiac arrest in the moment. And so it's a very traumatic scene of this baby passing kind of in this opening scene. They try to rescue the baby. You know, the, the this woman with the power, she's kind of saying like, hey, like pay attention to this baby. And the baby goes to the NICU. We assume doesn't make it because she knows her, of her gift. And she goes and takes her break. She just kind of goes upstairs. She's talking about the setting. The setting is like a gray and dreary Boston winter. And that's our opening scene. Okay. I mean, that's really interesting considering this is meant to be rom-com, right? In terms of genre, what what genre are we are we looking at this as? So, I mean, based on the pitch itself, we assume that this is a rom-com or some sort of kind of book in that space. She pitches it as upmarket dual POV with romantic elements and a dash of the speculative. I think that's pretty accurate. It does seem kind of more serious and more life-threatening than a lot of rom-com. So I definitely wouldn't say rom-com. I do think it's accurate to call it romantic elements up more upmarket. Yeah, it's it's a it's a tough scene, you know, to read, to listen to, obviously, for our listeners as well as myself and anybody, right? It's it, it's tough. I think it really sets the tone for how serious our character finds this gift to be, right? This isn't lighthearted. This is quite serious. So I expect the tone of the book to be equally emotionally draining, to be honest with you. I really liked the actual... So the, so as people are going to see on the Kofi account, like obviously I make notes through as I read it. And I I howled at like the opening paragraph, right? Like somebody just like cleaning up a really messy birth. She's just like talking about how, you know, visceral uh, a birth is so I just was kind of chuckling to myself and then I have the notes of like okay now we now we know that she's gonna she's gonna use her gift on this baby and then my next comment's like oh that's interesting and then it's like oh no you know like this is going south really really fast it's really sad you know I did have a kind of a technical note. My sister is a labor and delivery nurse. So I kind of know a little bit more about maybe the hospital inner workings. Also, I've delivered two babies, but technically nobody would be allowed to touch the baby other than the doctor, the nurse, the parents. I mean, if there was a respiratory therapist in the room, pediatrician, that sort of stuff. But there wouldn't be uh, an opportunity or anything like that, I think, for like a housekeeper to be touching a newborn baby, especially since there's no mention of like cleaning their hands, like sanitizing, like she's cleaning up after the birth. I don't know. To me, it was just like a bit of a, yeah, suspending disbelief there to kind of assume that the housekeeper would be able to be kind of touching the baby. I think it would be better if, you know, the parents offered to say like, oh, do you want to hold the baby or something like that in the moment? So it's a very, it's more obvious that that consent is given because I felt like she's really intruding on the on the family here, not only touching their baby, but also like emotionally because she knows she's going to know something that the parents don't. So it felt really intrusive, you know, emotionally and physically. So that was just kind of a note that I that I had there. I like that the setting was really strong. This kind of like dishwater gray of a Boston winter is what she calls it. You know, I think that, again, evokes kind of the heaviness that's going to come with this book. So 
I, I expect this to be a really emotional read. I expect it to be a tough read. I will say, and I think I've said this before on the podcast when we talk about, you know, books with traumatic things about children, there are some editors out there who you know, won't read books like this because they it is traumatizing to them. You know, I have pitched a book before about a missing baby and an editor is like, I just came back from maternity leave. I can't, I can't read this book, you know? So there is that kind of the content warning, the trigger warning, just like anything else. So I just kind of, again, like to let people know that it doesn't mean you can't write this book or pitch this book. You know, you're just going to run up maybe against some hurdles with, with such a an emotional, emotionally draining and graphic scene. But but it's, it's very well written. It's real well done but yeah my main note is just kind of about the actual touching of the baby great carly thank you right cc let's go to your next query letter dear ms lira i'm seeking representation for my ninety thousand literary novel the enlightened which i was lucky enough to have edited by award-winning author natalie morrill she called it a remarkable uproarious expansive and hilarious work of satire one with a real heart Add Catherine Haney's witty insights about relationships in Standard Deviation to Kylie Reed's exploration of race and class in such a fun age. The Enlightened is reminiscent of Zadie Smith's classic White Teeth, with a sprinkle of Zakia Delilla Harris's intrigue in The Other Black Girl. In a neglected, ethnically diverse housing development in late 80s Toronto, Two families' lives are changed forever by a chance reunion between Guyanese friends Ash, who has made it big, and Fred, who struggles with work and squawking pigeons. While Ash busies himself with a new project at work, Fred pursues yoga in an attempt to atone for his lapsed Indian past, while Sissy, his unflappable wife, tries desperately to be accepted into Ash's wife's Elise's upper-crust society the very society Elise is frantically trying to save from dissolution. Meanwhile, their bickering teenage kids, who, much like their parents, are trying to figure out who they really are, realize that society is not what they expected it to be as they hang out with a group of angry Rastafarians ready for a fight. But when everyone's paths converge and the truth about a new housing development that will destroy the neighborhood is revealed, Friendships and marriages hang in the balance. Follow two families as they journey back into their past and into their future and discover if a downward dog can really fix everything. As a second-generation Caribbean-Canadian mixed-race Toronto-based writer, like my characters, I am still trying to figure out who I am. But at least I can say that I never attempted to run over a pigeon. My stories have appeared in such journals as The Antagonist Review, Journal of Caribbean Literatures, and Macomer. I love fiction by Zadie Smith, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, Ian McEwan, Anne Enright, Tom Rockman, Tessa Hadley, Anne Patchett, Catherine Heaney, Marion Taves, David Lodge, among so many others. This is my first novel. Thank you for your consideration. Kind regards, Christine. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was your take on that? All right, a lot of opinions on this one. So I love satire, like huge, huge, huge satire fan, by far my favorite humorous genre. So I was very excited to read Natalie Morrill's blurb, super excited to hear that it was satire. And when I read the comps, obviously, like these are all books I adore. So I was very excited. What I would do with the comps 
and this is not a me specific situation, but rather like I'm giving you advice that I feel will make this query letter resonate with a higher number of agents is I would pick two, like pick two cops, two comps that really position your work. I understand the urge to be like the sprinkle of intrigue in the other black girl could be this. And the, you know, the, the exploration of race and class in such a fun age could also be a comp, but tonally, if it's not similar to these books, like these books are just so different, like such a fun age is so different from the other black girl, which is so different from white teeth. So this is confusing me more than helping position the book, although it is making me excited because literally all these, all these titles are titles I adore. So something to think about when it comes again to the plot paragraph, AKA the part that I always obsess about, I, I really like the hook of a chance reunion between two friends, one of them who has made it and the other one who is struggling because that sort of trope, like reconnecting when you, you're both coming from such different places now is, is very intriguing. I just would rather it be more about plot when you give us information on each of them as opposed to interiority. So the struggle with work and squawking pigeons, I, I would just, I would just specify like he drives a cab and is struggling with, I don't know, his marriage or like, I do understand the impulse to be funny and to mention the squawking pigeons line and to not be specific with his work because we'll learn about it when we get to the pages. But I don't think it's lending in the way that you're intending. It's just vague, still funny, but vague. And I do think that specifying it a little bit more focusing on plot and not interiority would be better for the query letter. While I'm a huge fan of interiority, it does not belong in a query letter, like barely any at all. So when it comes to the very last clause of the paragraph that begins with while Ash busies himself, that line reads, you know, they realize that society is not what they expected it to be as they hang out with a group of angry Rastafarians ready for a fight. I have no idea what that means. That came out totally out of left field. I'm super confused. I don't want to be confused. I want to be curious. That is my line. And I stand by it because it just... Like, it just felt like, again, like you were zooming in on specificity that had no context. So I would much rather this be like, look, there's Fred and Ash and, you know, one of them is a successful, I don't know, hedge fund manager. Maybe that's what he does. And the other one's a cab driver who's, you know, in debt. And they used to be childhood best friends. And now they reunited and they're trying to to see if they can still be in each other's lives despite this huge chasm of inequality in their new realities. And then to make matters worse... There's this new development that's supposedly going to destroy the neighborhood. Now, in order for that to make sense, it has to be the neighborhood that they both live in. Is that the case? I suppose that's possible. Or maybe the neighborhood of their childhood, but then they would need to have some type of attachment beyond their love for it in order for it to matter. So I would just flesh out a little bit more of the plot and not focus so much on the quirky, witty, super appreciated, but not quite relevant interiority. Also, the whole journey into the future, I do not know what that means. Like, are we going to move through time to the future? I just, I was structurally confused about the timeline, which will actually seg nicely into my critique once we get to the pages. And I do want to say, like, I love the author paragraph. I know you listed tons of authors and maybe some people might say, you don't have to list so many authors. I, I'd say just list the authors, you know, like they, they're, they're rock stars. They're all amazing. Yeah, list, list all the authors you love. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. All right. So will you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages? So the book starts off with Fred finding himself standing next to Ash in an exclusive room at an exclusive club in Toronto. 
and with Fred wondering how his super successful friend could be so unsuccessful at getting them out of the predicament they're in. We then flash back to Ash before we find out what the predicament is. One week earlier, letting it slip to his wife Elise that he was meeting with Fred, a slip that caused confusion in Elise because she didn't know Fred or his wife. And Elise says, well, we must have them over at the club. After that, we flash back to Fred on the day that he ran into Ash, which was entirely by accident. He was sitting in his taxi when he spots Ash and then he runs after him, which leads to security guards trying to stop Fred, who on the outside probably looked like he was randomly after Ash. But then Ash clarifies, no, no, I know him. And then in that moment, Fred's taxi was being towed, though Fred had no idea. He only realized that later. And in fact, Fred was thinking to himself how fortune had finally smiled upon him, clearly a nod to having been reunited with Ash. And then we move in time again with the narrative voice telling us that it's September and Fred and Ash, after a lovely summer of catching up, equally delighted to have found each other, are about to participate in a yoga class that their wives orchestrated. The pages end with a reference to how Elise, the one who came up with the idea for the yoga class, didn't know at the time of extending the invitation that trouble was brewing. Again, we have no idea what that trouble is, but that's all we get. And then the pages end. Wonderful, Cece. Okay, so what did you think of them? I want to start by saying the voice is very strong. A lot of people promise satire. Not everyone can deliver satire. It is incredibly difficult to do. This is intelligent. This is dry. This is witty. This is insightful. It's very, very interesting. Not only is this author able to pull off satire, she is also able to pull off omniscient, the omniscient point of view, which is seriously like no easy feat. So this is very impressive. Hats off, all the applause. Please feel very, very proud of yourself. I do still think it needs work. And in no way does this take away from my compliments. Here's what I think. I think it could benefit from both a timestamp and a POV stamp, but definitely a timestamp, which is actually interesting since like my two big picture notes stem from point of view and chronological structure. So point of view first. Yes, you can pull off omniscient, but I would recommend that you keep it one point of view per chapter, four different points of view in five pages. To clarify, head hopping is okay as long as you can pull it off and you can on a line level, but don't do it within the chapters. Just don't do it. It distances the reader, especially in the beginning. It's a lot more work confining each chapter to one point of view and I'm mindful of that, but it goes a long way to contribute to a story's flow. It goes a long way to make the reader connect first fully with one character and then with another. Second note, and I think you know what I'm going to say because you submitted to this podcast and it's what I always say, do away with the flashbacks. Like if you're going to start with Fred and Ash being at the club in a predicament, keep us there. Do not flash back to how they met each, you know, first from Ash's point of view, then from Fred, I should say how they reunited, not how they meet. It, I do want to know how that happened, but that that small flashback can come later, just not on the first five pages. Again, to be fair, on a line level, the author did pull it off. We dove into those flashbacks seamlessly and we shimmied out of them without skipping a beat. The writing is just very strong, but it's still not serving the story as a whole. Why? Because the presence of flashbacks are turning the curiosity seeds into aggravation stones. Here's what I mean by that. Like, One, the predicament they're in, the one that Ash is unsuccessful in extracting them from, planted in the first two paragraphs. And two, the trouble is brewing line at the very end. While those seeds are great, interrupting them to dive back in time is not. It's teasing without delivering. Teasing is desirable, 
you should tease as long as it doesn't feel like manipulation. The show should be so amazing that the reader can't see the strings being pulled, the, the strings pulling the puppets. And because of the flashbacks, we do see the strings. Because our curiosity is interrupted to add context that's happening in a totally different time. And it just didn't feel like the best use of the first five pages. So my vision is tighten the POV and follow a linear structure. And again, it's a matter of taste. So maybe you'll disagree. These things are, of course, subjective, but like hats off because you did a really great job with the writing and the tone. Wonderful, Cece. And I think we should call it aggravation drought because when you're planting curiosity seeds, what you want to do is keep watering them and watering them throughout the piece so that the seeds can grow into something bigger in terms of plot. And the worst thing you can do then is not water them and there's a drought and that means that the curiosity seeds pretty much die. Okay, Carly, your next query. Dear Carly Waters, Set in Los Angeles in 2010, Someone Closer in Age is an 80,000-word literary book club fiction novel. It has elements of the dysfunctional May-to-December romances found in Raven, Lilani's Luster, and Lily King's Writers and Lovers. It also touches upon complicated family relationships while coping with depression, like in Meg Mason's Sorrow and Bliss. Years ago, 34-year-old Patricia lost his sister unexpectedly. She now lives alone, manages a cafe, and seems fine with her non-existent social life. When she takes pity on a widowed neighbor, they attend a grief group together, and her life changes. There she meets Bryce, a divorcee, 17 years her senior, who asks her out after the first meeting. Their one date leads to a heated, emotionally complicated affair. Not only does he display manic behavior, but she's not comfortable with their age difference either, and tells herself it's only a fling. But things progress rapidly. He moves in with her, and their cohabitation becomes borderline codependent. He expects her to alleviate all his dark moods, and she places his needs ahead of hers. But her work suffers, her friendships dwindle, and despite what she told herself, she does fall for him. But right as Patricia thinks it could be a permanent thing with Bryce, he's killed in an accident. Feeling alone and gutted, she meets Bryce's sister and learns more about him than he ever revealed. Armed with this new information, Patricia must piece together her life and examine how the relationship correlates to the unresolved trauma around her sister's death. This will prove unnecessary if she's to regain her mental stability after these devastating losses and let people into her life for the right reasons. I live and work in the San Francisco Bay Area and receive my MFA in fiction from Purdue University. This novel is loosely based on my experience in support groups after losing a sibling as a young adult. For your guidelines, the first five pages are included below. Thank you for your time and consideration. Greta, guys. Great, Carly. Thanks so much. Okay, so what was your take on that? All right. So I think the big the big picture, I'm going to start with big picture today, I think. So I think I, I want a bit more of like an overall kind of sense of where this book is going. So in this opening paragraph, we have, you know, it kind of focuses on the, the dysfunctional May to December romance part of it, complicated family relationship, coping with depression. So I I felt like the the kind of crux of this book was going to be the Bryce relationship just kind of based on this based on this opening paragraph but then in the third paragraph he dies and so and then we have a whole another paragraph explaining when she meets his sister and everything like that so I'm a bit concerned that the kind of the the pacing either plot-wise or the emotional pacing of this book feels off because 
if it's this highly emotional and physical affair that's all consuming it and it ends about 40 to 70 percent of the way through like i'm not exactly sure so why exactly are we turning the pages through that last half i i don't i don't know if i'm seeing that really clearly i personally just don't think an internal transformation is enough for me personally i really just kind of need to know what what are we turning the pages for in this last little bit here so you know this this character's had tremendous losses and kind of coming out of the the fog of depression or kind of climbing out of that kind of hole of depression however you want to visualize it to me that's just not enough to kind of carry the plot through that last act of the book so i think maybe i'm just not clear uh, maybe on what this third act is or maybe it's just not you know expressed in the query letter the way that i think that it needs to be because yeah i don't know i just i kind of just assumed you know that this bryce relationship was going to be the crux of the the book and then if that just fizzles out i just i worry i just worry for the third act of the book which obviously just makes me worry for the query letter and, and makes me worry for the pages so that, those were kind of my, my main thoughts so i would try to just encourage them to restructure it so we really understand like what the one act two act three act is here and and how this plot is going to kind of reveal itself um it's pitched as literary you know slash book club fiction you know, I understand that it potentially could be more literary than, than my taste, and, and that's perfectly fine. But, you know, book the book club element, again, makes it makes it so that we need to talk about this book, right? Book club means there's a lot to talk about. Things are juicy, right? And so if this if there's a romance that's potentially the juiciest part of this book fizzles out, then, like, what's the book club going to talk about for that third act? Do you know what I mean? That's kind of what I'm trying to visualize and like, wrap my head around. So those are kind of my main notes. I really did like the, the personal anecdote at the end. You know, this novel is loosely based on my experience after losing a sibling as a young adult, and, and that's tragic, and, and I'm so sorry to hear that. But I, I do appreciate you including that context because I know what this, this probably comes from the heart. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you, Carly. Yeah, as someone who's written a book that started off with the character's grief, I can attest to that because grief can be extremely debilitating. It can look very passive on the page. So how I overcame that was had a child that was in complete denial about her grief and who was just trying to ingratiate herself to her new caregiver because she was terrified she was going to be taken away by social services, which made her extremely, extremely active. So, you know, that's pretty much what what you're wanting to know, that it's not going to be this kind of passive third act. Okay, why don't you tell us what was in those opening pages? Right, so we open oh, chapter one, we are in a cafe. We are going through the morning, the kind of day-to-day operations of being a cafe owner. We are in first person, so she's kind of talking us through the way that her day would go. She finds mouse droppings or wrap droppings, so that's a big deal in a restaurant industry, so she's like, I have to deal with that. You know, she's just dealing with all the, the kind of, you know, mundane, basic cafe activities. We meet some of the people that work for her. We meet Gordy and we we, got, we meet Stephanie. So again, we, we're meeting all these people. And then we see that she gets a text message and her, her coworker Gordy says, you know, look at it. And she says, okay, my sister's letting me know that my ex-boyfriend is getting married next weekend. So then they talk a little bit about her love life. She kind of explains a little bit who Aiden was, the, the ex that's getting married. And then this kind of just spurs a little uh, conversation between her and her coworker, which, you know, she says, all my sisters are married with kids, you know, except one which will never be. And we, again, kind of infer that that's the sister that passed away. And at the end, we learn that we are in Los Angeles. They say, um, you never last a day in New York. And she says, that's why I'll never leave LA. So we get a little setting mentioned there at the end. Wonderful, Carly. Okay, so what was your take on those pages? Did they do the heavy lifting you needed them to? 
So I think I think one of the things I struggle with with opening pages that are kind of like an average day in the life or like let me introduce you to my day and you know let me introduce you to my world is that they feel they it's very hard to kind of grab the reader by the collar and give them that shake you know so I felt like there were moments that were potentially interesting and so I highlighted a few of them, you know, the the rat droppings, the mouse droppings bit, right? Like, that's very interesting in terms of, like, throwing a kink in a restaurateur's plans. I think another thing that was potentially interesting was, you know, she talks about her co-worker and she says, I prefer when he crushes on, you know, for relationships, when he crushes outside the cafe. I was like, that's potentially interesting. You know, what if he had a crush on her? And that would be interesting, you know, power dynamic. But that doesn't really elevate and and I think there were some other interesting bits, like obviously the the explaining about all of the sisters are married, all of the sisters have kids, and you know, and then the one sister, you know, that will never be. Like, there's all these plantings of interesting moments, but it's all against the backdrop of a very mundane day, which I find you know just so limiting, and unfortunately, just doesn't grab me the the way that I that I hope these kind of things would. Another thing I think that this this is kind of missing out on the opportunity of is like more of an LA setting an LA vibe to these opening pages. You know, we don't know to the end. That's why they're in LA and LA cafes have a vibe, you know, there's just so much I think that's kind of left on the table here to kind of potentially elevate these opening pages. Because, you know, this cafe, when I when I read these opening pages, they could be anywhere, right? They talk about the the heady aroma of coffee, you know, drifted to the cafe's back kitchen, you know, that's any cafe in any town. So like, why this cafe? Why this city? Why these characters? Why this person? And that was the thing I was just missing a little bit, I think, in these in these opening pages. I think there were and there still are lots of opportunities to elevate. But right now it just it just felt a little bit mundane to me, a little bit, a little bit flat. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Well, you know, sometimes this kind of thing is a really easy fix. You just go a few chapters into the future, pick a really interesting moment in which everything changes and you make that your your beginning instead. So it's never like a, a really difficult thing to fix because from here, the story goes on, you have your inciting incident. So, you know, with these kinds of things, perhaps start as close to the inciting incident as you possibly can. All right, Carly and Cece, thank you so much. That's it for today's Books with Hooks. Let's go to today's guest. My latest novel, The Witches of Moonshine Manor, releases on the 23rd of August, and I'm super excited to be doing a few tour stops over August to November in order to promote it. I'll be visiting Atlanta, Chicago, Washington, D.C., Milwaukee, and Boston, as well as doing a few events in and around Toronto. If you live near any of these cities, I'd love to get to meet you at one of the events. Hi everyone, it's Cece. Question, what's the biggest difference between a book and a movie? If you listen to the podcast, you already know the answer. It's not that movies have things like special effects or soundtracks or even actors at their disposal. It's that books allow us to be inside someone's head to experience their inner lives, which is why the ability to write a character's interiority is so important. With that in mind, I've developed a webinar called Writing Interiority, Revealing Your Character's Inner Life. Join me on August 18th via Zoom to learn all about the foundation and functions of interiority, including how to leverage interiority into plot points. 
We'll cover techniques on how to effectively convey a character's inner life in a way that keeps the reader turning the pages of a story with lots of examples from some amazing books. And of course, we'll have time for a Q&A. Writers of all genres are invited to attend as knowing how to write interiority is a superpower useful for all storytellers. For information on how to register, please head over to my Instagram or Twitter page, click on the link in my bio and follow the instructions. And don't worry, if you're busy on August 18th, register anyway, because the class will be recorded and a recording will be sent to everyone 24 hours later. I hope to see you there. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. 
But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi everyone, it's Cece, and today's guest is not really a guest. It's Bianca, our Bianca. That's right, I'm about to interview her on her upcoming release, her fantasy debut, The Witches of Moonshine Manor, coming out on August 23rd. If you haven't pre-ordered the novel yet, what are you waiting for? And if you already have, don't worry, this interview will be spoiler-free because you all know how I feel about spoilers. And for the first time ever, I'm not even nervous. I'm just happy. I'm just honored. So here we go. Today's non-guest is Bianca Moray, founder and co-host of the popular podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, which is aimed at emerging writers. She teaches creative writing through the podcast and was named the winner of the Excellence in Teaching Award for Creative Writing at the University of Toronto School of Continuing Studies in 2021. She is the author of three novels, Hum if you don't know the words, if you want to make God laugh, and The Witches of Moonshine Manor, as well as the Audible original, The Pran Viper. She lives in Toronto with her husband and fur babies. Please join me in celebrating Bianca Murray. Hi, Bianca. CC, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm having a what the hell, man moment. This feels super weird, <laughs> but also awesome. Doesn't it feel weird? <laughs> I am reading your bio in the show you created. Like, what is even happening? And, you know, our listeners can't can't see you, but you're wearing a robe. You're, like, all donned out in witch's gear. This is just very exciting. I mean, normally I'd be wearing my bathrobe because I, I definitely don't uh, dress up for the show and I'm a bit of a schlub. But today I am wearing my witch's robe. I'm in black. I am feeling very esoteric. So I'm ready for you, Cece. Amazing. But as you know, I being ready for me doesn't necessarily mean being ready for me because I have a surprise. But that will come later. Okay. So your uh -oh. fantasy debut. <laughs> your fantasy de debut is about a coven of modern-day octogenarian witches who in order to save their enchanted manor and one of their sisters, they have to form an alliance with a spunky 15-year-old TikToker who's like super eager to smash the patriarchy. It's practical magic meets golden girls. One of the things you made up, obviously one of the things that every author makes up is our names right? Like in character development, names aren't just about what we're going to call someone. We have the six women, our teenager Persephone and the name of the town. Like, How did you decide on what, how, what to name them? And how did that choice inform, like I said, way beyond what we call them? How did it inform their personalities, their uniqueness? Yeah, I had to 
struggle with the names in this book, which I hadn't had in my other books. So names were changed. So originally Queenie was Sybil and Ivy was Zelda. Uh, And these were just the names that when I looked at them felt so true to their personalities. But then, as you know, Cece, when you write a book with seven main characters, it's a lot for your readers to have to take on. And in the beginning, especially readers are struggling. They're like, who's this honey? What's happening here? What's going on? Who's this witch? And so I had to change some of the names so that it was more in line with their personalities and their special powers so that the readers would go, okay, Queenie, Queen, she's in charge of everyone. Ivy, botanist witch. Jezebel's easy. Everyone's going to remember Jezebel. Tabby, Ursula, Ruby, you know, again, it was kind of a struggle to make sure that the names were very different from each other, that they didn't start with the same letters or sound similar. But in this kind of book, it's so important to name the character something that readers are going to remember and associate with them. So that took some playing around. I think in the original draft, the town was called Aurora. And then that changed because there is a lovely little town in South Africa called Dulstrom. Doesn't really sell it, calling something dull, but it's a beautiful little town. (laughs) (laughs) Strim means stream, so they've called it Dulstream. But it's a beautiful little town, and there is a B and B there or a little hotel called Critchley Hackle. And every time we went past that place, I absolutely loved the name. It was the same as where I got married in South Africa. I chose it purely based on the name, which was Moon and Sixpence, which I absolutely loved. So I then stole Critchley Hackle to name the town that in the book. This is such great advice for our listeners because when you are picking a name, it is a lot more complicated than I just think this sounds good, right? So yes, different letters for each of the various POV characters. Yes, names that will link to their abilities. Ivy is a perfect example. Well, they're all perfect examples, but I remember when you changed Ivy and I was like, that's the best name. So still on character development, you defy expectations with their characters which in my opinion is exactly what an author should do. So for example, Ursula is a seer. I mean that in the magical sense. She is clairvoyant and can see the future, but she doesn't trust what she sees. So Jezebel is 79 and has an insatiable sexual appetite. She does morning stretches to prevent sex injuries. Queenie is like the leader, super organized, super on task and responsible. And yet because of something that happens, she is actually being quite irresponsible and disorganized. Um, So did you intentionally infuse them with these contradictions? Or was it more of a, I built these characters in a fulsome way, applied pressure, and then I noticed the contradiction? Was it organic? Or was it something you planned out? With character, I never sit down and go, okay, these are the characteristics I want them to have. Quite honestly, characters just come to me and I give them free reign. And I let them run with whatever's happening. And, you know, I pretty much am Queenie. So for me, I was going, as a Queenie, what's the worst thing that could happen? You could let everyone down. You suddenly lose control of things because Queenie is a control freak. And when things are out of your control and it's kind of your fault and everything's falling to pieces around you, that's your worst nightmare. Same goes for Ursula. Like her whole thing is that she has the sixth sense. She should trust in these visions, but of course things have happened in the past and that's eroded this confidence in herself. So it's kind of undermining her whole ability. In terms of Jezebel, I've really laughed because there have been some reviews, early reviews of it, where 
people were horrified that in chapter two, there is a scene in which a 79-year-old woman is masturbating. And some of these people write and read romance novels, quite thirsty romance novels, but they are horrified that it's a 79-year-old woman masturbating. They would, it would have been fine if she was 30, but 79, no. And so to me, that's interesting because it shows the ageism that we have, that like it's okay for a young woman to be sexual, but not an older woman to be sexual. I write to understand my characters. And if that's why I hate plotting, Cece. If I plot, I feel like my characters become puppets and I'm just manipulating them through a scene. I want them to have agency. I'm like, here you are. You are in deep shit. There's something bad about it happened to you. What the hell are you going to do to get yourself out of it? And then I let them run with it. And Nine times out of 10, they surprise me, they fascinate me, they take me places I never would have thought of if I'd sat down with pen and paper and gone, okay, what is going to happen in chapter two? I want these reviewers to check in in 10 years because Jezebel will be 89 and she will still be masturbating. Get over it. Um, (laughs) I think there's a really good lesson here for our listeners, you know, whether you're a plotter or a pantser. The contradictions that make human beings interesting, they do arise when you make the very worst thing happen. So the Queenie example is the very best one. And I know that's the witch that you most identify with. And, you know, having, you know, having worked together with you for over a year now, I I can see that you're a hundred percent a Queenie. And I think that it makes sense that Queenie would be in that situation because of the authenticity that you infuse the story with. So it's not like one day she just decided to not be organized or she slipped up or she forgot. It's a lot more complicated than that. There's, you know, we're obviously not going to ruin anything, but there's six or seven things that had to happen and they all make sense that they happen in order for Queenie to be caught in that predicament. And also at the start of the novel, Queenie and everyone else is waiting for Ruby to return. And all we know about Ruby is that she's the missing witch. She's been gone for 20 years. She hasn't, we don't even know if she's going to return for sure, probably in two days. And we get curiosity seeds in the first chapters from various points of view. So from Ursula, from Jezebel, from from Queenie, and, you know, connecting with what I said, Queenie does say, well, hopefully no one's going to have to find out that we're in this mess because when Ruby comes back, she'll be able to fix this, we'll be able to fix this. And given that Ruby's the one that got us into this trouble to begin with, she kind of owes us. That's Queenie's stance. Whereas Ursula is like, oh my god, if people found out what I actually did to Ruby, all they know is a little bit of the story, they would be horrified. So we're left to wonder, you know, not just who is Ru- like who exactly is Ruby to them, not just a missing witch, and where has she been, and will she come back, but we're left to wonder something specific about Ruby's return for each of these witches. How do you do that? Do you, like right from the first pages, do you infuse these curiosity seeds from the first draft or did you go back and include them? When it came to writing this book, this is the first time I have ever written a whole novel in third person. Normally I like writing in first person and I alternate chapters that way. This is the first time I've done omniscient in many, many chapters. And it's the first time I've introduced this many characters. Now, here's the thing, you know, for for our listeners, when you have one character, you spend all the time with that character, you can get the reader invested in them super fast and boom, you hit the ground running. Then you add a second character, you've got less time, half the amount of time to do everything that you would have if you had one character. Then you add a third, a fourth, a fifth, and a sixth, and a seventh, and suddenly you need the reader to care about each of these characters 
early on before the action gets too much. Now, you have one or two options. One, you can just hit the ground running with all of the witches introduced in the middle of chaos, which means you're focusing on plot, but you're losing out on character. Or two, you introduce each of the witches kind of slowly, showing the reader their powers, who they are before the really big thing happens. But if you're going to do that, what is going to keep them turning pages? So for me, I knew very early on that I had to be planting those curiosity seeds because as the reader is absorbing each character and going, okay, Ivy is the botanist, Queenie is the ones in charge, Tabitha is this one. While they're learning all of that, they still need to be invested in the story. There needs to be something about plot that is intriguing them and that is keeping them turning the pages. So in those early chapters, it was important for me to differentiate Differentiate Ruby, who's the, you know, she's at that point is kind of like Maris in Frasier. She's the character everyone talks about, but you never see her. But each of the witches feels very differently about her. And I wanted that to come through. Some are so looking forward to her coming back. Some are nervous about her coming back. Some are sure she's going to come back. Some doubt that she will actually arrive. You know, that's what those opening chapters were for. Planting curiosity seeds, differentiating the sisterhood, each of the sisterhood, but also showing them as a unit, because I feel like the sisterhood is as much a character as the manor is a character. So that was all about building up to the rest of the story so that when things start being revealed, readers are like, oh, I was waiting for that. Oh, this question's getting answered. Okay, now we're off to the races. When I read it for the first time, I was 100% curious about Ruby and what her return would mean, who she was, all these questions, but also about the alarm. From the very first paragraph, we know that Ursula is going to sound the alarm. And I think it's like three chapters in, we, re- we learned that the last time the alarm sounded, something really bad happened. I won't specify what, but I wanted to know, like, why is this alarm going to be sounded? It's not something that happens every day, right? It's, it's an exception to the rule. We're not seeing them in their day-to-day lives. So in towing that that, that line and finding that balance, um, you did introduce this to character first, but with with plot. And of course, yes, focused on character, which I think you should have. But I want to talk about writing on online level because it's something we discuss a lot on the podcast and specifically similes. I'm just going to read three. It sends most of the men scattering like the kind of slimy insects who prefer decay to sunlight. Ursula was the manor's first gift bequeathed like a cat might present its master with a mouse. Third example. Something builds in Ursula then, like how water pulls back from the shore to feed an approaching wave, giving it the momentum to crest. When you are writing similes, do you like write the sentiment and then like leave little brackets with TK, like I'm going to find a perfect simile later, Or does it just come to you as you write? Does it come in the shower? Like, how does that work? Because they're just so perfect. Thank you, Cece. This book had a lot of similes, a lot of metaphors, way more than, than my other books, because I could have so much more fun with this book, quite honestly. No, when I write that, and I'm wanting to perfectly encapsulate or articulate an emotion or something, that's the only time that I really slow down when I'm writing. Because I will sit there and I will go, what does this feeling feel like? Is it a building? Is it an eroding of something? And then once I've kind of nailed how I think that sensation would feel for that particular person, like a building up of something or something holding its breath, then I start to think about the different, you know, 
instances in nature perhaps where that happens or specific to that witch. So for Ivy, a lot of her similes relate to nature very specifically because plants and things like that, because that's what she would be considering. So I think about the character what kind of simile they would potentially use, the best way to explain it, but also in a way that makes the reader stop and go, ha, I never really thought about it that way before. Because I really believe metaphors and similes should add to our understanding of an emotion, of a scene, what's happening. Uh, And it should just build on it and just sucker punch us with that, oh, wow, that's the perfect description of that. Absolutely. It, it goes way beyond illustration, much, much like a name in, in that way. So what about, what about research? There's so many facts in this book, even small things like when, when Ivy is explaining how before a tree sheds its leaves, it extracts as much of their sugars as possible. And you know, that, that feeds the branches and like, do you know all these things? Do you like, how much research do you do? I feel like everyone who follows you on TikTok knows you're intense about the research because you've shared pictures. But tell us a little bit about that process. Yeah, so these witches approach magic in a very scientific way, Ivy and Queenie particularly, because they're very cerebral witches. And so I wanted that to come through, but I suck at science. I was really good at biology, though, so that I was good at. So, And I love doing trivia and quizzes. We have a quiz team that's called You Can't Make Shit Up, Stephen, because that's my husband's name, and he makes a lot of shit up. Um <laughs> And, and But we do pretty well. We, we, we don't suck too badly. So I do love trivia and I do love learning these things and interesting science facts. So that's when I stop and I start Googling. How does a tree photosynthesize? What sugars does it use? What, what does that process look like? And then I try and make it you know, kind of simple in Ivy's explanation to Queenie in terms of how the science works, etc. This book didn't require as much research as a lot of my other books did. But again, I guard against spending too long on the research because the more you know, the more you realize that you know nothing. And then the more you try and know again and the more you learn. And then you try and cram everything you've learned into it because it's so fascinating. But by then you've lost the reader. So my advice on research is do just as much as you need to do. Include that. Try not to to include too much and then move on to the next thing. Did you do a lot of research for the extra chapters? Because I know we have recipes. We have a, a sisterhood ritual for full moon like we have all these things do you have a favorite one they were all a lot of fun and I did do research there and I did consult someone I think I still managed to make a mistake quite honestly I think there was one that was meant to have gloves on that didn't but luckily I do have the witch washing her hands afterwards of all the essential oils so these mistakes do still creep in but I loved Jezebel's full bush care for, for Ursula when she looks down and sees that Ursula has a rather resplendent full bush. I also enjoyed the, I loved making the cocktails as well. There's a lot of cocktails in here. And, you know, Ivy gives a kind of recipe for creating the perfect bikini or beach body, which I thoroughly enjoyed because that's just a case of putting on a bathing suit and going to a beach and saying, you have a body, it is perfect. You are on the beach, enjoy yourself. Okay, you mentioned cocktails, so I have to ask. I remember early on, before we had even submitted this to publishers, a beta reader mentioned that the witch, all the witches did was, was drink. They never ate. Like they, they, they hadn't had a single meal, I think, or even bite to eat. 
And I hadn't noticed that. Like I had read it so many times and I'd never picked up on that fact. But as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh my gosh, that's true. What is up with that? Do you forget to eat? Like what? Please explain that to me. It's hilarious when they pointed that out. But here's the thing. Eating is boring. Come on, a bunch of people, you're sitting around, your jaws are moving, shit might be falling out of your mouth while you're speaking. And I mean, you can't have a bunch (laughs) of characters speaking while they're eating. Stuff's flying. It's gross. It's grim. So who wants to write that scene? But, you know, you can have characters saying the most wild and, and inappropriate things while they are having drinks. They just have a sip of something and... I I loved how the witches let go of their glasses and they all flew across the room to the middle to kind of cheers and then boomeranged back to their respective witches. So for me, the the eating part was just really boring and I wasn't interested. And also when I'm living in my manor with all my friends one day, we will probably be having a lot more cocktails and there won't be as much cooking happening. But it was a very good point and it's a mistake I should not have made and we were lucky to correct that later and include that. And also it added an element of something to me, Cece, when they said they don't eat, then I was like, okay, but what would they be eating? You know, and I realized pretty much all of them will be vegetarians except Queenie because Queenie's like to hell with that man. I'm eating meat. And you know, those kind of questions are so important because they make us go, oh, wow, it's not something I thought about. And they're not just going to be eating anything. Like what specifically will they be eating and how will that manifest? So it was, it was an excellent observation and helped with characterization again. I feel like eating is like dreaming when it comes to writing. Like it, it's interesting to dream and it's enjoyable to eat, but nobody wants to read about it. So like there are obviously exceptions when you're talking about a book that's centered on food, but that's usually even the cooking or the baking and the aromas and the anticipation. It's not the actual chewing, right? Because that, that is very boring. I wanted to ask if you had to grab a drink with one of the witches, which witch would it be? Oh, that's such a good question. It wouldn't be Queenie because she's too much like me and I think we'd kill each other. Um, Honestly, just have a drink with yourself if it's going to be Queenie. Like, I, no, no, I, no, no. <laughs> I love Queenie. I would grab a drink with her, but like, it, it, yeah, she no. would bring nothing new to the table. <laughs> we'd, we'd probably disagree about everything as well because we're both kind of stubborn. I would probably, it would probably be Tabitha. I think Tabitha would find the most fascinating. I can't get into that too much without giving a lot away. But um, what I can say is that Tabitha is really bitter from things that have happened to her that she hasn't been able to let go of. She says really inappropriate things. Um, and I think just having a drink with her and Widget. So Widget is her crow familiar. I think uh, I would choose I would choose the two of them because I think they would be really fascinating to to sit and have a drink with. Interesting. I would choose Jezebel. I just want to know about all the sex she's had. Uh, <laughs> and she will tell you. <laughs> I just want to be like, let's play Never Have I Ever, <laughs> Jezebel. <laughs> so, okay. You wrote in so many points of view, right? Like this is omniscient and we are inside a lot of people's heads. Did you ever lose track of whose head you were in as you were writing. Because I know you mentioned that readers sometimes would say, I don't know whose head I'm in. And that was a challenge for you in order to make it clear to the reader. But what about you as a writer? Did you ever lose track? Did you go, wait, whose head am I in again? Or did you always know? Did the witches' voices ever blur together? Oh, 100%. These are mistakes that you make at any any level, especially when there's this many characters. And not having ever written Omniscient before, I found it really tough. So hats off to, to those writers who are writing in Omniscient. What I struggled with was 
deciding which scenes had to be done in omniscient. In other words, all the witches are together and I want each of their thoughts, each of their perspectives coming through in the middle of the chaos and which scenes had to be very specific. This had to be Ivy because the stakes were, the highest stakes were Ivy's in that particular scene. Or sometimes I would write a whole scene and it would kind of be omniscient, but without any of the witches' perspectives in there, it was like, me as the narrator was omniscient and I was not putting their thoughts in there, um, which was weird as well. So it took a lot of work. I had to, you know, I write in Scrivener. So I had to put a little um, symbol on each chapter to say, okay, this is now Sybil uh, Queenie's perspective. And I need to make sure that everything's coming through from there. And, you know, Queenie is, she she's impatient. She's abrupt. Everything is damn this, damn that, because she's just so irritated with struggling with things. Whereas, you know, Ivy's much more cerebral. Her response to things is more measured, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I made a lot of mistakes there, had to go back, had to fix, had to fix, had to fix. And, you know, uh, it's probably mistakes I shouldn't have made at this point in my career, but we have to relearn how to write with every book we write. At least I find that I do. And this was a huge learning curve for me. I don't even know if I would call it a mistake. I mean, yes, technically, but it's all a part of the process, right? Like it's like when you're coming up with a new recipe, you have to play around to to finally find the perfect balance. Here I am talking about food again. But okay, I am glad, sadistically glad, that you said that you did lose track of whose point of view you were in because in the beginning of this interview when you said you were ready, let's see how ready you actually are, Bianca. So a little background oh, for our listeners. Yet. <laughs> a little background. A while back, I tweeted to the writing community that if you pre-ordered a copy of The Witches of Moonshine Manor, I would do a happy dance. And what happened, of course, I was challenged to post a happy dance on social media if we reached a certain number of pre-orders. I'm looking at you, Tate Basildon. Um, now, I am not one to back out of a challenge, and so I accepted. The problem is I'm also not a trusting person. I was like, I want proof of the pre-order. You post me a picture of the receipt. Um, and, you know, you had to attach that to a thread and Twitter buries threads. So long story short, um, we did not have all the proof, but it feels like because of the Twitter technicality, that's me trying to get out of the challenge, which I don't want to do. So I will record I will dance. I will post. I am not promising a good dance. I'm not even promising a decent dance, but I will dance. However, I am now proposing that I will challenge Bianca to a which witch said that challenge. And if she can get all of them right, then great. Then I will dance by myself. But if she cannot get them all right, then Bianca also has to dance and also has to post. Um, we'll have two videos, so it'll be fun. And maybe because I'm really nice, I'll let you make one mistake, but only one. Um, but yeah, that's that's what we're doing now. Bianca, do you accept the challenge? I accept the challenge knowing full well that I'm going to be dancing. <laughs> so, but <laughs> Are you a good dancer? No, not at all. I'm terrible. <laughs> but you know, you got to lean into that. You you got to lean into it. So I'm. Um, that's fine. Let's let's see how badly I suck at this. Which which said or thought this? Words that remain unspoken for too long have a way of festering. Words are meant to be set free, not kept caged. They're a lot like birds that way. That was Ursula. You got it right. 
amazing. Yay! I might repeat them, by the way. There's no guarantee. It's such a pity that intellectualizing anxiety doesn't do anything to diminish it. Damn. Hold on. <laughs> I want you to get it wrong so sounds bad. Sounds like Ivy. It sounds like Ivy. I will not tell you right now because I just realized that I shouldn't have told you the first time. It sometimes takes tragedy to reveal parts of ourselves that we never knew were there. Jezebel. For isn't envy usually the cause of the most vicious judgment that we pass on others? Jealousy that they dare to live in ways that we, for whatever reason, cannot. Tabitha. I love how sure you are of all these answers. So, last one. She thinks about how sometimes the most sacred conversations we'll ever have are the ones that require no words, and how there are very few people in our lives who will see, ever speak that silent language with. Oh, I think, I think that's Ursula, but I may be wrong. Okay, you were right about 100% of them, except for the last one, which you knew you weren't right about. I'm so impressed. Who, see? who was that one? Oh, Persephone. Pers that was yes! Persephone. Yes. <laughs> Man, I am dancing by myself, Tate Basildon. <laughs> oh, Tate, what are you doing to me, Tate? Okay. <laughs> if you could have one of the witch's powers, which power would it be? I think I would go with Ivy's. I think there's something amazing about being able to help people in that way, you know, being able to concoct potions to make people feel better and to heal them. And, you know, I think uh, medicine would have appealed to me except for all the gross blood and gore. But I, I do like the idea very much of, of being able to help people in their way and have that knowledge. And, you know, Ivy was based on my best friend, Charmaine, who lives in Edinburgh, who um, is an amazing healer. And every time I have some issue or the other, I'll contact her in a panic. I, I once, Cece, accidentally took nitols before I was about to leave for the University of Toronto to teach a class. I took two nitols accidentally for I was supposed to be taking a vitamin or something. Um, and that is not what you want as you're about to walk into a class and lecture people for three hours is to, you know, be falling asleep. And I contacted her in such a panic and she immediately told me what to take to counteract that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, that, you know, she's a tribute to my best friend. And I think those, that's the kind of singular power I would love to have. I want a Charmaine in my life too. And if it were me, it would be Tabby's power. Because I would love to talk to Baba, to be able to tell Baba like, we're going to the vet. It's going to be okay. But no, but no, but here's the thing. You've got to think about, you can't just think about the good parts. Think about the bad parts. Think about oh. if animals could speak to you all the time, Cece. And think oh, about no, the that would break my heart. People do no. to animals and you no. would have to bear witness to no. that. So, no. you know, with each of their powers, there's a good side and there's a dark side. And I feel like I only want the good up. side. That's all I want. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I you're couldn't, not I couldn't live with that. <laughs> I, I wouldn't, I couldn't live with that. I would. Like, I would not survive. I'm way too sensitive for that. That's an excellent point. Then it would be Ursula's. Yes. Yes. I think so. Yes. I don't know. I don't but know. Think, this is hard now because I was about, thinking about the good stuff. But think about the responsibility that comes with clairvoyance, with knowing what's going to happen. And Ursula herself says it, that you get a vision and if you interpret it wrong, someone might die, terrible things might happen. So again, you know, it's... Uh, when you think of characters and things like that, you know, you can't just give them powers that are all easy and great and wonderful. Each of these things needs to have their, their shadow side. And I think the responsibility of knowing what was going to happen to the people you love and but not being 100% certain and not knowing if what you're doing is making it worse 
or leaning into that or managing to save them, I think that would also be, listen, you already don't sleep, Cece. So, I mean, you're going to be up all night anyway, <laughs> worrying about all this shit. So maybe it's, that's what I'm saying. At you. least it would be a productive insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Lord. Speaking of animals, though, like, why don't your books have cats? I'm asking on behalf of Wombat now. Yeah, Cece's referring to, I did an Instagram post where my cat Wombat was going, this is a book about witches and there isn't one cat and none of your books have got cats. And she was quite pissed off about it. I don't know. Perhaps cats felt too much of a cliche for, for witches. Um, and I didn't, you know, want to necessarily go the whole cliched route. Um, but I will have to fix that. Wombat is not happy with me. So in the next book, there will most certainly be a cat because I've written a lot about owls, parrots, dogs. Um, and in this book, there's a lot of magical animals, but no cats. So I will have to rectify that. I'm looking forward to a cat. What's something about yourself or your personality that you learned because of your writing or maybe your publication journey? I never used to consider myself a political person. I even laugh now when I think when I set up my Facebook account in 2007, they said political views and I was like, I'm not political, which is hilarious because I am hugely political. And that is what writing has taught me that, you know, that Things that fuel your rage, the injustice in the world, the things that keep you up at night and have you arguing at dinner parties, these are the things, at least for me, that I realized I should be writing about because they're things I'm passionate about. These are messages that I want to get out in the world. And I don't want to bang my readers over the head with messages like racism is bad, misogyny is bad, homophobia is bad. But you know, these are things that are still happening in the world every single day. And so these are things that I'm always going to be writing about. I don't think I'm ever going to write, you know, a full length novel that doesn't tackle these things in some way. And so, you know, I've embraced that part of me. Um, it's meant that there were a lot of people who were Facebook friends with me many years ago when I was not quite so loudly political, who have since unfriended me, who don't like these political views. There's a lot of readers who go, just write, just entertain me. I'm not interested in your politics. Um, and I've lost those readers as well. And that's fine. I'm, I'm totally fine with it. Yeah, there's no such thing as a truly interesting person or book that's universally adored. That's just not possible. And so these... These reactions, um, like obviously I, I would want everyone to love this book, but I, that's just not realistic. So speaking of, you know, different reactions, different opinions, when this, when this was finally submitted to the world and you thought to yourself, well, okay, so my next step is having an editor. What note were you dreading receiving? Like what editorial note were you like, I really hope no one asks me to do this. I was terrified that I'd been told there are too many characters and I need to get rid of one of the witches because it would have felt like choosing your least favorite child and then being like, okay, bye, which, you know, I was really terrified about that, which is why I worked so hard to make sure that each of them contributed towards the story in some way so that if I had to take them out, there'd be a huge plot hole or 
things wouldn't make sense or things wouldn't come together because and I don't know why I chose six witches um, originally I honestly don't I just thought of the different personalities that make up a group dynamic that would you know because I didn't want these witches to be all kumbaya all the time linking arms and braiding each other's hair that's not realistic you know when a group of women's together they can hold each other up they can be fierce together they can be each other's biggest advocates but if you've got strong personalities people are going to butt heads people are going to not like certain things about each other and I wanted that to come through as well so I'm not sure how I came to the six witches but each of them was really important to me and I was so lucky with my editor at Mira um, Nicole Brebner who read the book and she just she got it you know from the opening pages she got it she wanted me to revise the opening pages to make them more streamlined which I 100% agreed with and was already working on before I even got those notes from her but that was my my biggest worry have you ever gotten an editorial note it doesn't have to be for this book that you were like no 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 this makes no sense I don't see it but then when you incorporated it you 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 changed your mind has that ever happened to you I think that happens a lot because like most writers, I'm like a dog with a bone, you know, I'm like, this is how it is. I mean, you know, I, you can't just change this because this is how it is. Meantime, you've made all this shit up. Of course you can change it. You can change anything. So I understand how writers get so resistant to editorial notes because they're like, well, you know, she is 27. Well, I mean, she could be 25. No, she's 27. Well, I mean, she could be 25. And so you have these discussions and then finally they let go of things and they're like, oh yeah, okay, that would make more sense. And the same with me. I often get notes. Um, you know, that I go, oh, no, 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 that's not going to work. That's not at all. And then, but luckily, it doesn't take me too long to get there. So I will sleep on it. And by the next day, I'm like, oh, man, they were right. Of course, of course, they were right. Um, and then I change it accordingly. And, you know, Cece, there were a ton of notes with, with you throughout the book. I mean, I just want to give credit where it's due. I could not have written this book without you. You told me upfront that I was starting the book in the complete wrong place. And I was, I don't know what the hell I was thinking when I started it where I did. Then I changed it and everything fell into place. And along the way, you asked questions and you prompted things and you would say, I'm not sure that so-and-so would do this. And then I'd be like, well, of course they would do it. I know this person. And then the next day I'm like, oh shit, Cece's right. No, they wouldn't do it. So, um, yeah, you know, all writers out there, we, we resistant to these things. We love these characters. They feel so real to us, but we really need to be open to, to that process. We've been working closely for so long. And yet I am so surprised with, with what you just answered, because I thought for sure you were going to have to really struggle to remember a note that you resisted because whenever I gave you notes and I also, you know, I was there for when Nicole gave you notes, like you're just so open like you're so flexible and malleable and just I don't mean to suggest that it's just like oh yeah sure here here are the changes but it's more it's more like a collaborative thing and so I had no idea I am learning this now I do love the collaboration that's the one thing I've so enjoyed us collaborating on this project and this is how I want to work going forward and I'm I know there are listeners out there who are going oh Bianca you are so lucky and believe me I know it I 100% know it and I'm so so grateful for it but at the same time you know you don't see my resting witch face uh, when you email me and go well you know uh, maybe we can change this and I'm scowling at the at the laptop for whatever and then you know I, I, I rage and seethe for, for five minutes and then I'm like okay yeah okay let's do that 
Listen, whatever works, as long as I can <laughs> read great writing, like as long as I can continue reading this, yeah, you, the, the resting witch face, by the way, you know, for, for those of you who have read the, the arc and for anyone who does pick up the book, it is a nod to one of the witches. I will not say which one. Humor. This book is hilarious. Like actually hilarious. And it's, it also made me cry and it is hard for a book to make me, make me cry. And it's also tender and it's also uplifting and it's also very stressful in certain parts with the conflict, but throughout it all, it's funny. It's hilarious. You are a very funny person. You, you're, I've been laughing all along. I keep muting myself so that my laughter doesn't interfere with the recording. Is that natural? Like, do you, are you just able to be funny or is writing funny different from being funny? Thank you, Cece. You know, my first two books that I wrote that were widely rejected by everyone were kind of these madcap capers that were very funny. And then when they got rejected by everyone, I was like, okay, it's because I'm not that funny or, you know, I shouldn't be writing funny things. And it took me a long time to realize that the books were funny. They were just badly plotted and characterization was terrible and that I shouldn't shy away from humor you know, completely. Um, and so I had humor in my first two books, a very dry sort of subtle humor in there. But this one, I really wanted to to lean into it. I love comedy. I love humor. My husband's one of the funniest people I know. He, he makes me laugh all the time. And I try and, you know, make him laugh back. It's not always as often as with, with him. But I, I really wanted to lean into it with this book. I wanted it to be fun and funny. And I wanted people to laugh out loud. And uh, humor is difficult to write. You know, you've got to get the timing right. You have to get all of that right. You've got to make sure the jokes land. And again, I credit my writing groups. I credit you with looking at the times I used humor. Sometimes I did it over the top. I went too far. No one has ever accused me of being subtle. Um, and so then I had to rein it back and walk it back, walk it back. But I did, uh, when I arrived in Canada, I did a stand-up comedy course with the uh, Second City. I'm so sorry. And Please tell me this was recorded. No. I, oh, I man. So. <laughs> I hope not. Um, but that I learned a lot there as well. So I feel like if you're going to write humor, it is something you kind of should be studying in terms of, you know, what works, what doesn't, etc. So, So I'm glad that it that I was able to pull it off. You know, as an agent for all our listeners, what I would encourage you to do is find the funny. True, true masterpieces, they're all funny on some level. There's always, even if it's just a sprinkle, a dash, and depending on how dark something is, it could be like really dark humor. And and I think the same is also true of the obvious comedies. Like the shows that are supposed to just be funny, they have those sad moments. So finding the funny there is is just... It, it might actually be also a lot of fun for you to, to, to do. Thank you, Bianca. Thank you so much for letting us do this. This was so much fun. I cannot wait for your book to come out. I cannot wait for the world to meet the coven. If you're listening to this, have you pre-ordered Bianca's book? Or maybe ordered Bianca's book if you're listening to this after August 23rd. Please do so. And I will pay the piper. I will do my happy dance and record. And it's going to be so embarrassing. I feel like for every additional pre-order we get after this episode is CC will dance for a few seconds longer. So let's make her dance, people. Let's make her dance. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. 
calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.